Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The 1521 Conquest of Mexico from the Aztecs by Spanish conquistadors is addressed from a wide variety of historical points of view, opinions, interpretations, and presentation styles by past and present authors, historians, and commentators. Before exploring early colonial Mexico, let's take a brief look back at the last stand of the Aztec, as well as European battle tactics and the Western military tradition with historian Victor Davis Hansen. We're talking about the invasion of Mexico from the Caribbean at Veracruz and the march inland between 1519 and 1521 by sort of lesser nobility, noblemen, Hernan Cortez. And he's a very interesting guy. And I think, you know, he'd left in his teens to the New World. And then he, I think he'd been in Cuba under the Velasquez governorship for a number of years. And in any way, he raised the money and he, he had heard of fabulous wealth and a fabulous civilization in the inland of Mexico. But although there had been people who had seen it, nobody quite believed it. So he had almost no information. So he sailed the short distance from Cuba to Veracruz, and he prepared to march inland. And he did. He had about 1,100 men. And the famous story that he burned his ships because it was either you know success or failure, but not retreat. And so the thing to remember about his conquest was it was probably absolutely impossible. We have Bernal Diaz's firsthand account, among other later accounts. So pretty much what happened, we have, at least from the Spanish point of view, there were two requisites. You had to have a military genius who had, had really no military experience to speak of before, like Hernan Cortez, who's a larger-than-life figure of Themistocles and his cunning and his ruthlessness as well. And then you could not have destroyed an empire of 4 million people had not you had the Tlaxcalans and uh, the Tabascans and a whole series of the Totonacs, I think they were called, indigenous people who had been subject to Aztec oppression. And by subject, I mean they, in various wars of rebellion and unification on the part of the Aztecs, their people had been enslaved and brought to Tenochtitlan, Mexico City, and then sacrificed, human sacrificed in a horrific fashion. So there was a great hatred of the Aztec Empire, and Cortes manipulated that brilliantly. So even on the initial assault or entry, he had a thousand Tlaxcalans with him. And then he went in and he, he had a very good propaganda that only a person that had horses or these huge mastiff hunting dogs or Spanish steel blades or Spanish armor, highest quality steel in Europe or gunpowder, or cannons, or this strange language, or these priests, all of that had to be beyond the comprehension of Montezuma and the Aztecs, and therefore had to have a divinity element in it. And there had been reports how they got there to Veracruz. People in the Native American community had transmitted village to village that people had arrived on these godlike ships that had sails, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, anybody would think it was supernatural. But after a while, that novelty wore off, and there was a series of revolts. 
And Cortez then was faced with a two-pronged challenge. He had been recalled on the one hand by the governor of Cuba and by extension the crown, and Navarez had had a huge force to attack him in his rear of Spaniards. And then the Aztecs were now on to him and they were attacking him. So he retreated all the way back to Veracruz, left some of his men under very ruthless but brilliantly lethal commander Pedro Alvarado. And the long and the short of it is after defeating the Spanish contingent, he won them over. And then he brought a huge force of about 2,500, got back to Mexico City, saw that it was an open rebellion in Alvarado who had massacred, not that he hadn't himself. And there was a huge fight. And it was famously known as the Noche Triste, the terrible or sad night in which about over half of his force, or at least about a thousand people were killed trying to get across the waterway. Remember, Tenochtitlan, Mexico City was built on a lake. And so he had to retreat in utter defeat. He was almost wiped out. He got back and then he regrouped. Everybody thought he was over, done with, and he got a larger force. And this time he came up with a brilliant idea that he would be a maritime commander, that he would build lightweight ships and then label them, dismantle them, bring them over the mountains into Mexico's city's lake, reassemble them, and then fight on this sort of Venetian-like causeways and waterworks inside the city and destroy it. And he did. And he did all of that within two years. The asymmetry of the odds are staggering. He probably never had in the field at any one time more than 2,500 Spanish conquistadors, although he had hundreds, if not a few thousand indigenous people, but he was outnumbered. So how did he do it? And to show the advantages of the Western way of war. So he had superior technology. Steel is much better than obsidian. He had a military tradition that you find and destroy the enemy and annihilate them in the Clausewitzian terms, not you stun them and knock them out and tie them up and then transmit them back to Mexico City, pass them through the ranks for fodder for human sacrifice. That's a very inefficient way of fighting. They had horses. The enemy didn't. They had dogs. The enemy didn't. They had gunpowder. The enemy didn't. And even when they ran out of gunpowder, they were sitting on a veritable field of the ingredients of gunpowder. So they went up to volcanoes and they found sulfur and they found saltpeter and they created their own gunpowder. If they needed to make a bronze cannon, they found tin and copper. So they had that Western tradition of induction and the scientific method. And that gave them enormous advantages. It explained why Montezuma was not in Barcelona. He did not have the navigational equipment, the expertise, or the military dynamism to get there. We're not talking about morality, and we're not talking about preordained history. We're just saying that all things being equal, the West had an advantage. It meant that they could have a bad commander, they could have bad weather, they could do stupid things, and they could still win, given their military traditions and their technology and their organization and discipline vis-a-vis the Aztecs. The Aztecs had no margin of error. Had they had a brilliant commander, had they unified the indigenous people, had someone been able to capture Spanish weaponry, and they did, and they could emulate them or fabricate them, and they could not, then it might have had a different outcome. When you read Bernal Diaz's Conquest of New Spain, 
you want to read this hating Cortez because he's supposedly the archetypical European marauder, bandit, conquistador, forcibly introducing foreign religion to indigenous peoples, bringing with him everything from whooping cough to new strains of malaria to, of course, smallpox. But when you start to read about it, it becomes very complex. He's dealing with people who ritualize cannibalism, who ritualize human sacrifice. We know from the Aztecs' own records that so many people were killed about 30 years before Cortez arrived and the bodies were dumped in Lake Tenochtitlan that people had to flee the city because of the putrid smells and infection that followed. And so when you start to see the dynamism there, the Aztecs were murderous people. And if today it's very odd for me to see a lot of the romance that surrounds them, especially in the Mexican-American community, when they have other indigenous peoples like the Tlaxcalans, while they engage in human sacrifice, they did not institutionalize on a continental scale mass death, and they rebelled against it. And you would think that that would be a more suitable ancestor to choose if you were going to romanticize pre-Columbian Mexico. And then when you look at Cortez himself, it's very hard to see how he did it. I mean, he's pulled down from horses. He's clubbed. He's surrounded. He's got people trying within his own circle and cadre trying to kill him, to assassinate him. He's got Native American allies that decide to change sides and they almost wipe him out. He has the idea of ships. He has to build them. I mean, there's nothing the guy can't do, whatever you think about his morality. And then he ends up very badly in his late 50s. He's sort of stripped of all of his conquest, the spoils of war, so to speak. He goes back to Spain. There's a lot of anger and dissension and disagreement about his legacy among the Spaniards themselves, especially the Catholic Church. There's fights between his heirs about which property is which. And he ends up not a very happy, healthy, or well person. He dies in Spain in his early 60s. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.